This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I tried this recently after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this and usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks. As a coach or an athlete, you will not find a better product that focuses on the essential electrolytes your body needs during competition. Element has become a staple in my own training and something we are excited to offer our coaches and student athletes as well. Element is used by military special forces teams, Team USA Weightlifting, at least five NFL teams, and more than half the NBA. You can try it risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. Element came up with a very special offer for you as a listener to this podcast. For a limited time, you can claim a free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. For U.S. customers, this means that you can receive an eight-count sample pack for only $5. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. That's drinklmnt.com slash justinclimo to claim your free eight-count sample pack. Drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. The Context Podcast is proudly sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar, our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. Delta Wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on special occasions. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European wine drinkers, California wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard sourced from Napa, Sonoma County, and Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with an eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations with every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. Also, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful, the wines are great, and you'll be supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at winesforchange.com, discount code, contacts at checkout. Hello, and welcome to Contacts, a podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches sharing what they have learned throughout their career. I want to open the door into my network of contacts whose innovative, reflective, and diverse coaching knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. I'm your host, Justin Kleinel. Welcome back to Contacts. We are joined today by the legendary Mary Jo Truesdale, head softball coach at Sheldon High School in Elk Grove, California, and 2020 NFHS Softball Coach of the Year. Super excited to have you here, Coach. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. All righty. Let's get after it. Long storied career, 20 plus years at Sheldon High School. If you could take us back to the beginning, how did you end up coaching, first of all? And how did you end up getting into your first job and then any subsequent moves you've made? What was the process or the impetus for those to where you are now as the nationally celebrated and recognized coach? I think before you go into the coaching mode, you first have to go into my playing mode because I started out 
pre-Title IX in the early days. And that's in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a very long time ago for a lot of people who were not born yet. PE and athletics back then were very different than they are now. As a matter of fact, when I was growing up in southeastern Michigan, very small town, there were 86 in my graduating class. I knew everybody, everybody knew me. We had a girls and a boys gym, believe it or not. The boys gym was about twice the size of the girls gym. And the only sport available to us was basketball. And actually, it wasn't even five on five at that time. It was six on six. We had two guards, two forwards, two rovers. For us to practice, we had to practice in the morning if we wanted to practice in the big gym. And so we would walk in the snow barefoot up the hill to get to the big gym. And that's what we would do. In order to play in the big gym, we got that occasionally. Most of the time we played in the small gym. The, the girls' gym is what it was called, actually. That didn't change until the 70s when I went to college and then we played five on five then when I went to Albion College, a small college in Michigan. There was softball when I was in high school, but it was in the summer and it wasn't travel ball except for we would get in my dad's station wagon with my high school PE teacher who was our coach and we'd drive around to different counties and we'd play against different towns. And that was about the closest to traveling that we would do. It wasn't traveling to LA or Las Vegas or any of those towns. It was just traveling to Hudson or some of those little towns in Michigan. There was, I think there were a couple of travel teams in Michigan at that time. Lansing had a travel team. Grand Rapids might have had a travel team, but those weren't available for the small town girls at that point. I did go to Michigan State eventually, and I played softball there, and I played field hockey there, but I didn't play basketball because when I walked into tryouts, the girls were a little bit bigger, a uh, little bit stronger, and so I offered myself up as a statistician there, and that's where I really decided that I thought I wanted to become a coach. I was able to watch the other side of the game. And basketball was actually my first love and my first coaching job when I went to Indiana. And I was a a Spanish teacher there and a middle school PE teacher. And so I coached uh, basketball at a middle school. Title IX came into effect when I first graduated from Michigan State, but it took years to implement. And so when I first started coaching it, still hadn't really happened yet. I moved back to Michigan after my first year in Indiana to be closer to my family and my friends. And I started teaching in a private school, an independent school, very small. And I coached basketball and volleyball and started a small softball team and became the AD there and the dean of an upper school. And I was there for eight years. I even coached a middle school boys basketball team one year because as the AD, I couldn't get a basketball coach. So I coached the boys and that was really fun. I know Um, what that's like. Sometimes you just got to step in and do the job. Yeah, you really do. Then I decided it was time to get back into public schools. So I moved to Charlotte, Michigan, and I took over a JV job coaching softball and I taught elementary PE and Boy, that was really exciting because everybody loves an elementary PE teacher. They just think you're golden. Mm -hmm. 
And when I took over the JV softball job, I thought this is going to be fun. Teach the basics, no fundraising, just do my thing. So I did that for a year and then the head varsity job opened up and they really wanted me to take it. So I did. And I did that for five years and it was cold in Michigan and it was snowy in Michigan and it was rainy in Michigan. And I had a lot of friends that had moved to California and they kept saying, you've got to move out here. You'd really like the weather and coaching here is a lot of fun. So after five years of coaching in that weather, I thought I'm not 40 yet. I think it might be time for a change. So I packed up my bags. I left in the middle of the year, took a leave of my job and moved to Sacramento. I had a lot of friends and I substitute taught in the Sacramento district and watched a lot of softball in the spring. And it was during the drought and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. No rain, no snow. I thought I can do this. And so I looked at all the school districts and I knew that Elk Grove was a pretty good one. And so I applied for Spanish jobs because I had been a Spanish teacher and really enjoyed teaching Spanish and got a job at Elk Grove High School. And they had a JV softball position open and I got that job. And I thought, this is really what I want to do the rest of my career. I'd like to coach JV, build the fundamentals Mm -hmm. without all the pressure, not have to worry about rankings and fundraising and newspapers and parents and just really build the fundamentals of a program and work Mm -hmm. with the head coach. Within a year, the head coach stepped down and they wanted me to take over the head job. And of course, I said yes. And there I was building another program. And at that time, the Elk Grove baseball program was and still is stellar. Mm -hmm. And a man named Gary Dreher was running it. And I loved that guy. He was it. Mm -hmm. He really was. And he became my mentor. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to build a softball program like he had built the baseball program. And so I decided that I wanted to become the Gary Dreher of softball. So I would watch his practices and I would watch what he did. And I just worked hard and really tried to turn that program into what I thought would be a successful program. And so within a few years, we won three league championships and did pretty well in playoffs. Never won a section championship, but we did well. And then an opportunity came about where I could go to Sheldon and build a new program. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, leaving Elk Grove High School was the hardest thing I ever did because I loved that school. I loved that program. An opportunity to build a program once in your lifetime only comes around once. And the listeners might not know, but Sheldon opened from scratch nothing except a physical plant. And that's what you got the opportunity to build something from ground zero. Right. And with just freshmen and sophomores. Mm -hmm. So I applied for a job at Sheldon teaching Spanish and coaching softball. And I got the job 
and moved to Sheldon. We had the opportunity to either play JV or varsity. And I knew that many of those sophomores coming in probably would have played varsity at their regular school. And so I thought, why not? Let's play with the big girls. So we did. And it took a few years and we took our lumps, but by 2002, we had won a section championship. And the rest is kind of history. We've done well, we've worked hard, we've built a solid program and it's been a nice ride. And 24 years later, here I am still at it, almost 70. I can't believe it. That's so awesome. And I've got a lot of threads to pull out here. So I want to go here. You're at Elk Grove. Yeah, I'll come back to the other stuff. But you're at Elk Grove. And you're looking at Gary Dreher's program. And that's the model. This is what, not that I aspire to be Coach Dreher, but this is the model from which I want to build my foundation and my structure. And you were able to do that. And then in going to Sheldon, new circumstances, new situation, new kids, and you want to take that foundation with you. What I'm really curious about, and this question is different than I usually ask it, because you had so many experiences coaching different sports and all these other things, but what were the core values that you finally landed on after watching Coach Dreher? And what were the non-negotiables that you established that gave you that success that then you were able to pick up, refine, and implement at Sheldon? Well, one of the things that I really focus on is dealing with parents because that's a true love-hate relationship. You just never know what's going to happen with a relationship with a parent. One minute, they love you. The next minute, they hate you. And a lot of times, you don't even know why. I had situations in both schools where I play the player and they like you. I play the player, they don't like you. I play the player, they like you. I move the player to a different position, they don't like you. And, and it, it's hard to figure that out. I think the important thing that I've done is I try to keep an open relationship, an open phone conversation, an open door with my parents. And I think the older that I've gotten, it's gotten easier, of course, for the parents to realize that I am open to conversation and there's no reason to be upset. We can have a conversation and we can discuss situations, but what I really prefer is that the athlete talk to me first. I think it's important that athletes learn to communicate what their issues are. And then if we can't resolve the issue, bring the parent in. One of the things that I did bring from both schools that I instituted, both schools that I wanted to mention, because you had asked the question, what has worked at both schools, is I use a little trick called playing for all the marbles. And what I do is I tell the girls that we are playing for all the marbles. And I do believe that when you step on the field that you have to believe that you can win every game that you play. Otherwise, why are you there? And so what I do is if we win a game, 
I give them a marble. And I did that at Elk Grove and I've continued to do that at Sheldon. But I've gotten a little more sophisticated. Now I try to give them a marble the color of the team that we're playing again. I found a, a company where I can order these marbles from. And every game that we play, if we win a game, I give them a marble. There was a year where I didn't give them marbles and I gave them like a ribbon and it just didn't work. They did not like that. They wanted their marbles. And if I forget a marble for a game, they don't like that at all. They want their marbles. And so now they've come to expect these marbles, they're important to them. And for some reason, it's really something that they love, something that they can hold in their hand after every game. And when I give them my little game speech, it's almost as if they don't care about what I'm going to say. They just care about what color the marble is that I'm going to give them. I love that. I love that. And that's definitely something that's a tangible culture building piece that you've been able to implement at multiple stops. Mm -hmm. Are there other pieces that you've leaned on throughout the years that are significant value adds in regards to creating the culture that you want and given the success that you've had sustaining it? I don't know if you've heard of Bruce Brown, but he does a lot of impact culture things with little booklets. And what we do every year at the beginning of our season is that we come together as a team. And of course, this year on Zoom, and we write out our core covenants as a group. And they could be, and these are like team rules, but they're even more important than that. And they're things like respect the game, simple as work hard, play hard, trust the process, stay humble. And anything that the girls can come up with, we write down on the whiteboard. Mm -hmm. And then they take pictures of it with their phone. And then every week, this year in our Zoom meetings, but usually when we're together, it'll be every week, we take one of those covenants and we dissect it. And we talk about what it means to them personally. And then during practices, if we feel that we're not following one of those covenants, then we highlight it. We'll say, you're not really working hard and playing hard. You're not really trusting the process today. We really need to respect the game a little bit more. And so we can go back to those covenants and reinforce them. And we've done this now for a number of years, and it's really helped impact the culture of our program. It sounds like what you're doing is you're co-designing your core values so that you have greater buy-in from the players, right? It's not dictatorial. This is what I believe, and so this is what we're going to do. But no, what's important to you? This is your team. Let's put it on the board. And now we can hold one another accountable to it, which gives you the ligature underneath whatever the strategy and softball skills are to really build that camaraderie and that foundation of relationship, which is, is truthfully what we all need when things go sideways. I Absolutely. It is their team. Ultimately, they're on the field. 
they're making the decisions. We're not. And I think that's something that often we forget when we get all animated and worried about things that I, I tell my kids this all the time. I'm going to play zero minutes this year. So I, I don't know what you expect me to do. But the thing I want to go back to and the question I traditionally ask is, what have you learned watching other sports that you've been able to apply to your coaching and because of your diverse background, which is really fascinating to me to know you started off as a basketball player, you're a three sport athlete in college playing field hockey, which many in California don't know what that is, but it's a phenomenal sport. My daughter plays it. I love it. And then you fell into softball and that became your go to. So you have this transformational and, and translatable experience from all these different sports that I'm sure you still lean on. And if you have any of those uh, memories or those strategies, I'd love to hear them. But I'd also like to know, as you walk around campus and you watch the other hyper-successful people and teams that you guys have, what have you been able to steal and implement that is, is maybe cross-disciplinary? What I've really learned when I watch other teams play, whether they're on our campus or opponents, is that teams with energy who like each other the most, win the most. Talent aside, I remember a playoff game that we were in a couple of years ago, and by far we were more talented. But when that team came out for pregame and they were practicing, in my head, I thought, they're gonna beat us. And I, didn't know what else I could do to get my team psyched up. Mm -hmm. And I knew that we were the better team in terms of skill level, but that other team, they liked each other better mm -hmm. and they had more energy. And sure enough, they put it together. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I've learned. And that makes all the difference. If they like each other and they have more energy, they can outplay anybody. Are there things that you've been able to take from your experience coaching volleyball, coaching basketball that you've been able to somehow integrate into the way in which you approach softball? Because often we get caught in the weeds on strategy and maybe it doesn't apply, but then you think back and in the, the days in which you described the six on six basketball where three played defense, three played offense, it's a totally different beast. What are the ways in which you've tried to look at your sport through a different lens? I think most importantly, you've got to take care of the whole player and not just what's happening on the field and not just the player on the field. You really do have to take into consideration what's happening off the field, whether it's with their family, whether it's politically, what the climate is, you really have to be aware of what's happening. And I think I've learned that from coaching all the sports and just it circles around to, the, to taking care of the whole player. So as you think about that, and you've been doing this a long time and have probably adjusted the way in which you 
teach, the way in which you drill, the way in which you interact with student athletes based on what you just described, how would you offer for the listeners a description of how your approach to coaching has changed from when you first got into it until now? Are there things you can point to that are, yeah, when I started, I was here and, and now I'm over here and these are the things that I pour a lot of energy into. Well, I definitely, when I first started, I knew it all. I came out of college and I thought that I had everything nailed. I knew the drills. I, I knew the strategies. I just knew what I was doing and I just had it down and I didn't listen. And so I was the dictator and I was tough and they were going to do it my way. And I was a yeller because that's what I thought worked. Mm -hmm. And that's what I thought got respect and football coaches did it. And so I did it and that's not who I am. And that's not what I've become. And I've definitely become a listener and I think it's made all the difference in the world. I think, and it's not that I wasn't successful, but I know I could have been more successful and I could have done better by my kids back then because I've talked to them about it because I've kept in contact with many of my players and I've said, I was really hard on you. And they said, but that's the way it was back then. And I said, but it didn't have to be. It didn't have to be like that. And I've changed. And I think I've definitely become a better listener. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Not that you've become a better listener, but the response from your early career players as you... I don't want to say you apologized, but you were definitely expressing some self-reflection on how you had approached it. And they said, yeah, but it's okay because of this. And you're like, no, like if I had a do-over, knowing what I know now, right. our relationship would probably be very different. I could have poured into you and set you up for success in life in a completely different way, but I didn't have the self-knowledge or the experience, the wisdom, so to speak, to understand that at the time. And I really only knew what I had gone through and the way in which I had been coached, which I think what I hear you saying now is you got to look around and you got to figure out one, who are you? Don't try to be someone else. Two, listening, knowing the whole person, not just your athlete is what matters because that relationship piece is going to be what transcends once the softball ends. And I think that's such valuable advice. And I think often misunderstood as today's athlete has changed when the reality is no, we know a whole lot more about emotional intelligence, social emotional health, and how do we best apply that as an advocate for our kids? Does that sound about right? That sounds perfect. That is exactly true. Kids are kids period. I would agree. Do you have a favorite 
or a most memorable failure that you can point to that you've leaned on throughout your coaching career to help you aspire to be better as a result of it? Well, I had a, my first varsity experience in Charlotte, Michigan. My team went four and 24. Needless to say, that was difficult, not just for me, but for the players, because it's hard to step foot on a field and expect to win when you know that it may not happen. And so we really had to look at small successes, not just in games, but in practices. And so those small successes would come from things like, did you make contact with the ball when you were at bat? Did you run it out to first base? Did you field the ball properly? It was the little things that we focused on. And those were the little things that we recorded. And we would talk about post-game or post-practice. And so I carried that into my coaching philosophy. We would focus on the little things and all of my teams know that now. And if you were to ask any of my players in California, what does Coach Truesdale focus on? They would say she focuses on the little things because if you focus on the little things, then the big things will happen, like winning a game, like winning a league championship, like winning a section championship, like getting a section championship hat or a big marble. And so it's the little things that really matter. And it really came out of that foreign 24 season. As young coaches, we are often very outcome driven. And as older mm -hmm. coaches, whether we want to be or not, we are aware of the outcome, but the shift has usually happened to the process, what you describe as the little things, which then lead to that outcome. And so your ability to take that season and redefine success for your athletes in the way in which you did informed your philosophy that stays true through today, where I would imagine if I came out and watched you practice, it would be so simply complex in the things that you are drilling and constantly working on that are going to eventually lead to the compounding interest of winning games versus, hey, if you're a football coach, let's work on all these trick plays. It's like, no, this is what we do. We do these five things and we get great at them. And then ultimately that leads to success. And I think that's so valuable because that's what the great coaches do. And that's what the great athletes do. If you, you know, look at what Kobe poured his time into, it's the fundamentals and they're important and they never get boring. Knowing that you've had so long to put this philosophy together and it's shown repeated success, right? Here's the recipe. Let's go and cook this up in the kitchen. It makes me wonder if there's anything that you have recently changed your mind on from a coaching standpoint. I used to think this, and I've been reflecting and studying, and, and now I'm here. I, I think it's what I mentioned before about looking 
outside of the fence more. I used to say, leave it outside the gate. Leave it outside the gate. I don't think in today's world we can say that anymore. There have been too many things that have gone on that impact our young players to, to just say, leave it outside the gate. I think we need to help them process what's going on outside the gate because many of our players have been hurt by what's going on outside the gate. And I think if we can help them process that, uh, we are the adult. And sometimes we are the adult in their life. And I think helping them process that can only lead to them becoming happier and healthier. I love that. That's really interesting. And I hadn't thought about it until I was listening to you describe it. And given the noise that is in our human lives, let alone our teenagers' lives with all the social media and the constant notifications and pulls at their attention, it's not as easy as it once was when, you know, we still had to walk across the house with the phone with the 100 foot cord if you wanted to go get some privacy to where no you can't that stuff doesn't stop so i think you're right and how do you address it put it out there take time away from softball to help these kids grow and get to the other side of whatever the things they're carrying with them are and i think that's a really interesting share and uh, something I'm going to sit with for a while. One more question as we wrap up. If you could somehow reach back in time and talk to the post-Michigan State coach getting into this for the first time, what advice would you have for your younger self? I would have given my players a voice earlier and I think that's the biggest piece of advice and also take more time for yourself. I think it's important to get that rest. And I would say that to any young coach so that they don't burn out because there aren't a lot of us left and it's important for younger coaches to go the distance because coaches do burn out fairly early and we need coaches. I think that's interesting because you're right. It's like teaching, right? Whatever the national statistic is that it's ridiculous how many teachers are out of the profession and the right. coaches is probably the same by the first two or three years. Right. And I would say these days, the way in which people conduct themselves officiating probably has a worse statistic than coaches and teaching. Yes. But I want to go back to what you said earlier in regards to how important parent relationships have become for you as a more experienced coach. Because as a younger coach, when you described it was dictatorial, I was a yeller, it was my way, I didn't listen. The parents were probably getting the Heisman at that point and they, they couldn't even get in the circle. So what would you say as you navigate relationships with parents where you described, look, they're playing, they were happy. They were playing, they weren't happy. Sometimes it just didn't matter. And I had no idea. And I've always told 
my parents and kids at the beginning of the year, it's look, here's the difference between a coach and a parent. As a coach, I want the best five players to play. As a parent, you want the best four players and your kid to play. So we need to understand the different perspectives there so we can come together and understand one another. What would you say have been the most important pieces of navigating those relationships that while every conversation is different, there's standardized themes that you've been able to go back to help maybe that angry parent get to the other side and understand that you do have the best interest of their kid at the forefront of your mind? I think you have to be honest. You have to just lay it out there and say, these are who I think the best players are in terms of positional ranking. I don't think that your daughter is as good as another player is at this position at this time. This is what I think your daughter needs to work on. Okay. I don't keep a lot of players on my team, but then again, at our school, we don't have a lot of kids come out for softball. We're a small program anyway. And so I don't have as many issues as maybe some of the other schools in our district that have 18 to 20 some girls come out for the program. And I tend to talk to the parents in a big meeting at the beginning of the year. And I give them a booklet by Bruce Brown about the parent role. And so that helps because I have a pre-talk with parents about issues. So I don't really have as many issues with parents as I think some players or some coaches have, but I just try to be honest, as honest as I can be about where I think their daughter ranks in player position mm -hmm. ranking. And I give all my players as many opportunities as possible early in the season. Mm -hmm. And even during the season, if an opportunity arises, then I can give them an opportunity I do. But stats don't lie. Mm -hmm. And when somebody is 0 for 20 at bat and has made 15 to 18 errors at a position, eventually, they can't be there. That's the one thing about softball that's different than some other sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of the beauties of that game. And I spent four years coaching travel softball and I always preach to my two daughters, hey, you just need to be one of nine. Doesn't matter where, be right. versatile, be right. able to play every position. And my eldest took that to heart and she's behind the plate, she's pitching, she's wherever she needs to be. And my younger one was like, no, nah, I'm just gonna play center field. So it's like, all right, what happens when there's a better center fielder? Uh, no, but the statistical piece that you mentioned is a little bit different in softball because it's so objective. It's no, here's the math. It's simple. And here's what you're doing. And I think I've never fully understood why people get hung up on what position they play. I'm whatever you're on the field, you're on the field. And if you're not, you try to get on the field and the understanding, I think, from a life lesson that we preach a lot is role definition matters, which is what I think you're talking about. And two, every role matters. And Gino Ariyama was giving this speech the other day that I got a chance to look at. And he said, hey, you don't think every role matters. 
tell that to the guy that has to put the piano out on the stage at a Billy Joel concert. What happens if that piano doesn't get out there? How valuable is that guy? And it's describing how do you allow the athlete to be at the center of the equation, understand the value of their role, and let them describe that to the parent in a way that, hey, I feel whole. Stay out of this. This is my deal. It's my journey. You had your time. Absolutely. So that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. I know that was off script, but it's been fun. Great to pick your brain on this. And I'm really hoping you get a chance to play this spring on the other side of COVID. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate the time. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. Hi, this is Natasha McKeel, recreational tennis player at the club at Pasadena and labor and delivery nurse. Ever feeling tired after a long day at work or after tough practice? Try Element. That's L-M-N-T for the energy you're missing in your life. It's sugar-free and filled with electrolytes your body needs for energizing power. Try it risk-free, money-back guarantee with our special offer at Drink Element. That's lmnt.com slash Justin Climo. You only pay the shipping. What's there to lose? Power up. Thanks for listening. If you found this valuable, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and give contacts and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support. 